Good morning, everyone. So good to have you here in the house of the Lord to worship with us. Uh, We're continuing in our series of messages from the gospel according to John. I've titled the series, The Message Became Flesh. Y'all might remember back, if you kind of think back a bit, that I preached through the letter to the Romans not too long ago. Uh, Paul writes this letter to the congregations in Rome. It's a bit of an odd letter for Paul because he's writing to churches he has never seen. He's never been to Rome. And uh, because he is wanting eventually to make his way to Rome and for the churches in Rome to send him further west to spread the gospel all the way to Spain, uh, he kind of sends this letter by way of introduction, and he wants the people in Rome to know what it is that he's proclaiming. What is this gospel that he is sharing with the world? He writes this long, it's the longest of Paul's letters that we have, and lays out, this is the gospel I preach. And there's an interesting kind of an elephant in the room that he addresses in this letter uh, and devotes a a, a good chunk of a a couple of chapters to this. Uh, And this is kind of the big question, right? If Jesus was God's Messiah sent to vindicate and be the shining glory of the Jewish people, why did so many Jews reject him? Paul spends a lot of time talking about that in Romans. Did God fail? Did he miscalculate? Uh, Was he expecting a different reaction when Jesus came? John addresses the same question in the passage we're looking at today in his gospel. We're in John chapter 12. We're finishing verse 36 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 50. I have titled today's message, Pig-Headedness and Redemption. Let's start in the second half of 36. Jesus said these things, and having departed, he was hidden from them. But even though so many of his signs had been done before them, they did not believe in him. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks back, I preached on the passage immediately preceding this, uh, when it says Jesus said these things, the last thing Jesus says before this Uh, is that he has come uh, as light and he's encouraging people to take hold of the light while it's available so that darkness will not overtake them. He says this and leaves and he's hidden from them. We're not sure exactly how. uh, If Jesus simply hid or somehow miraculously they can't find him, whatever it is, uh, he's not... Uh, near anyone right now and John is in these verses we're looking at today he's closing the first half of his gospel and you can really take the gospel of John and split it into two big chunks the first half all the way through chapter 12 basically deals with Jesus presenting his message to the world Jesus, uh, through signs and through teaching and through actions, is communicating to the world who he is and what he has come to accomplish. When we finish chapter 12, we kind of close the chapter on that. And starting in chapter 13, Jesus focuses his attention not on the world at large, but on his disciples. 
on those who have turned to him in faith. And from chapter 13 on, uh, until we get to the, the crucifixion and all of that, but even then, uh, it's very much Jesus pouring into his disciples. So we're about to enter into that uh, second half of the Gospel of John. But this is kind of the, the concluding bit of the first half of the book. And uh, here's what John has to say about this. That even though Jesus had performed so many signs among them, they did not believe in him. Uh, now, this is uh, kind of a pattern, I think, with the Jewish people. I've been, uh, we're still in the early uh, weeks of doing Group Josiah, where we read uh, the Bible through together as a group. I'm leading a group of people through that, and we're... Uh, making our way through the books of Moses, uh, the first five books of the Bible. And even in the first five books, we can see very quickly a pattern that, that holds for the Jewish people from the very beginning all the way to the time of Jesus. And it's this pattern of God doing astounding things only to be met with a, a ho-hum response from the Jewish people. And uh, God breaks the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, they are uh, not only suffering under uh, oppression as slaves, but uh, they are, there's a, a campaign of genocide being carried out against them. They're trying to kill all of their male sons. And God humiliates the most powerful army in the world at the time, the Egyptians humiliates the mightiest nation on earth and breaks out the people of Israel from slavery and genocide in Egypt through miraculous signs, ten plagues that humiliate all of the Egyptian pantheon of gods and he splits the Red Sea apart and lets them cross on dry land and uses that same Red Sea to drown the Pharaoh's army. He gave them water in the desert where there was none. He miraculously fed them daily with manna. And if there were any doubt, he made himself visible. The invisible God gave a visible sign of his presence among them. A column of cloud by day and of fire by night. So that they knew every moment of every day that God was with them. What more could God have done to communicate to the Jewish people uh, that he was on their side? He was for them. What was their response? We had uh, 600,000 men, which means maybe a million and a half total if you had women and children. You know of those who were of adult age, you know how many of those made it into the promised land? Two. You know why the rest didn't make it into the promised land? Because they did not believe in God. After all God did, they did not believe. And John is saying that's exactly the same thing that happened with Jesus. John has handpicked seven signs. At the end of the book, he'll say, if I had tried to tell you everything Jesus did, all the books in the world would not be sufficient to cover it. So I, I just picked seven. 
And through these signs, Jesus was communicating a message. These were not just miracles. It wasn't just, ta-da, look what I can do. It was, let me point you to something tremendously significant through this miraculous act. First thing he did, out of the box, just before he was even starting his public ministry, he's at a wedding. They run out of wine. How embarrassing. And the celebration looks like it's going to be cut short. So Jesus says, uh, you know those, those stone jars, ginormous stone jars filled with water for ritual purification because the Jews were so obsessive about pleasing God with all of their rituals that they had to have these enormous quantities of water available so that everybody could constantly be cleansing themselves to keep God happy with them. Jesus says, I'll use that. And turn that water into wine. Stop with all the rituals. Let's celebrate. The Messiah has come. Life has come. And from the beginning, Jesus was making it clear what he had come to do with his first sign. He does some healings. He heals one man with no faith. He asks the paralytic, do you want to be healed? And the paralytic says, I can't. The only way to do it is to get down to the water in time when it gets moved. And I can never make it down because I'm paralyzed and somebody's always going to get there ahead of me. So forget it, Jesus. There's nothing to be done here. Jesus didn't care that he had no faith. He said, get up, grab your cot, go home. And healed him. Not because of his faith, but in spite of his absolute absence of faith. You know what the guy did? 38 years paralyzed. Of course, Jesus did it on a Saturday, and all the religious experts were really upset with him for doing that because they said he was breaking the Sabbath. You know what that guy did? When later Jesus found him and said, sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. I've given you a chance. Make good use of it. He runs off immediately, finds the religious authorities who are trying to deny Jesus and gives them a complete report on what Jesus has done. Which is the fodder they're going to use to accuse him of breaking Sabbath. He sides with Jesus' enemies. Jesus healed him anyway. Then he heals another guy who does have faith. Boy, that guy has faith. The man born blind. He restores his sight. And then uh, when the Jewish authorities are grilling him, he stands up for Jesus. I don't care what you bozos say. He is from God. And you're never going to convince me of anything else. And he stands boldly for Jesus. And how else, how more clearly could Jesus prove that he's come to offer himself to everyone, to those who want him and to those who don't? He showed that he's come to satisfy and meet our needs. He took five loaves of bread, two fish, and turn that into a feast for a, a multitude of thousands. And then he said, let me explain to you what I'm talking about here. I am the bread from heaven. I've come to provide for you everything you're ever going to need. He talks about having come to offer us eternal life. 
How better to prove what he's talking about than to take a man who's been in the grave for four days rotting and bring him back to life, good as new. He showed to his disciples that he's God Almighty when he walked on the water and met them three miles away from shore in their boat. When he commanded the storm to stop and showed them this isn't just some guy. This is God come to us. The one who commands creation itself. (coughs) Jesus did amazing signs and John only picked seven of them to tell us about. In spite of all this, people did not believe in him. Let's keep reading verse 38. So that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which said, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were not able to believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and has hardened their heart, so that they might not see with the eyes and understand with the heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. John is doing here what Paul tries to do in, uh, in Romans 11. Why did so many people reject Jesus when he came? Because that was the way it had to happen. God knew before Jesus came that was how it was going to play out. He sent him anyway. And John says, this had to happen this way because that's how God said it was going to happen. It could not happen any other way. And to make the point, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, a lot of people believe that Isaiah can kind of be broken into at least two major sections. The first 39 chapters very clearly address the situation about 100 years before the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, But then we get to chapter 40 and the message switches to uh, comfort to a people who have suffered the agony of deportation. So a lot of people think maybe it was some disciple of Isaiah after him that about 100 years later writes the second half of Isaiah. In that case, uh, this part of Isaiah is anonymous, uh, but some of the most glorious prophecies in the Bible are in these chapters. Uh, there are four major servant songs in these chapters where God speaks of his servant. And the most famous of them, the most amazing of them is the last. And that's the one we're quoting from here. That last servant song begins at the end of chapter 52 and goes into 53. And uh, it begins by saying that God's servant, Yahweh's servant, is going to be lifted up and all the nations are going to be drawn to him. And we can't read that without thinking of what Jesus has just said a few verses earlier about the Son of Man being lifted up. And if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And he's talking about his crucifixion. And Isaiah immediately in that servant song goes to talking about he's been disfigured, marred so much, you can't even recognize who he is anymore. And he goes into this uh, description of the servant who's suffering and by his stripes is healing the people 
who is taking upon himself the sins of others, our trespasses. And early in the servant song, Isaiah says this, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And Isaiah uh, is thinking of the many ways in which God, but the idea of revealing your arm is the idea of, of acting and doing something that people can see clearly your mighty intervention and activity. God has act, interacted with his people mightily and powerfully, but nobody believes what God is saying. He sent prophet after prophet and nobody cares. All they want to hear is the false prophets who lie to them constantly. And when the true prophets of Yahweh speak up, they try to silence them. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God has been speaking to his people and has revealed himself mightily acting on their behalf. And yet, the response has been rejection. You see, this pattern was happening during the exodus this pattern was happening during the years of the kings this pattern was happening during the exile and after the return from the exile constantly God was communicating and acting and the response time and time again is rejection he quotes this second quote is from earlier in the book chapter 6 that's the famous passage right when Isaiah has this vision of God in all his glory sitting on his throne and the train of his robes fill the temple and the cherubim are praising him and Isaiah is uh, falls on his face before him before the glory of God Almighty and God says who's going to go and Isaiah says, send me. And here's the instruction. This quote here uh, in John is a little bit odd. It doesn't track with the Septuagint, which was the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. It doesn't track with the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew version we have of the Old Testament. It's slightly different from both of them. Uh, those two mention not just eyes and heart, but they also talk about ears. Uh, in John's quote here, uh, ears have been left out and it's just been eyes and heart. Uh, but in, in the Septuagint, it's just a passive construction. Their eyes have been blinded, their heart has been hardened, their ears uh, do not hear. Um, in the Masoretic text, it's a direct command from God to Isaiah. God is telling Isaiah, say this, uh, Isaiah, uh, blind their eyes, harden their heart, silence their ears. Uh, and I think all of these versions, even this slightly different version we have here, uh, he has blinded their eyes. Uh, we don't know who that he is. It could just as easily, it could be God. It could just as easily be the devil who has already put into uh, Simon, uh, I'm sorry, um, Judas Iscariot uh, in his heart to betray Jesus. It, 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 we don't know who it is, who the actor is in this. And when God commands Isaiah in the Masoretic text to issue this command, who is Isaiah issuing the command to? It's not clear. 
But the importance here is that there is this blinding, this hardening of understanding, this deafening that is deliberate because if only they would use the eyes God had given them, if only they would sense and understand in their hearts the way God had designed them to do, if only they would open their ears and hear what God was saying, then they could turn and God will heal them. Clearly the divine intent is to heal. And the frustration through all the prophets of the Old Testament is that God has given his people everything they need to respond in faith. They have eyes, they just don't want to use them. They have ears, they don't want to hear. They have a heart, they don't want to understand. (coughs) And the great tragedy is that this rejection is not due to a lack of the possibility to grasp what God is extending. It's just pig-headedness. I don't want to. And I don't think John is telling us here that uh, God didn't want these people to believe in Jesus. And that's why in Isaiah he predicts this and therefore it has to happen because it has to be fulfilled that God doesn't want the Jews in Jesus' day to uh, turn to him in faith. I don't think that's at all what God is trying to say in any of the versions of this passage from Isaiah because his intent is very clear. I will heal them if they will just turn. The frustration and there's some uh, even sarcasm in this. This profound frustration from God that I have given you everything you need to respond in faith and I on my side have done everything I need to do to give you cause to respond in faith and yet no matter what I do and what I make possible for you you do not want to put your trust in me and it's an expression I think of divine frustration that we respond to him in such a pig-headed obstinacy. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Jesus' glory. And spoke about him. Isaiah is addressing the pre-exilic community. And Deutero-Isaiah is addressing the exilic community. And they're talking about the realities of their day. But actually what they're saying about the Israel in those days holds true. And when Jesus shows up. It's the same thing all over again. This had to happen this way, not because God didn't want them to believe, but because, knew God, because God knew already they were not going to, and let us know before the Messiah even came, that this would be the response. So that when it happened, we wouldn't think, oh man, God messed up. Surely it was going to be better than that. Surely there'd be more people on board. We might think that even today. If Jesus is so glorious, if the life he has come to offer is so amazing, then why isn't the whole world on board? I don't know. We're just stupid. We're obstinate. But let me tell you, it's not because God has not given us the capability, and it's not because God has not communicated to us the invitation. 
It's all on us. And when Isaiah saw God seated on his throne and was given a vision of the glory of God, what he was looking at was Jesus. What he was talking about is Jesus. And this is what John is trying to help us understand. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole message is about Jesus. The content of it all is condensed and summarized in Jesus. God knew the Jews were going to reject Jesus largely when he came, but he sent him anyway. I think most people even today continue to reject Jesus. Why do you think he came to us anyway? Let's keep reading verse 42. Nevertheless, even from among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing it, so that they would not be banished from synagogue. For they loved the glory from humans even more than the glory from God. James famously talks about a dead faith. He says there's a living faith, there's a genuine faith, and there's a dead faith that is useless. I think John is describing for us here what dead faith looks like. Even among the rulers of the Jews, there are people who believed in him. There are people there who know the scriptures, and when they see what Jesus is saying and what he is doing and the arguments he is presenting that these are the actions of the Father who but God can raise the dead back to life, All these things add up perfectly, and they understand. Jesus is not some charlatan. He's not a trickster. He's not a con man. They understand that he is who he says he is. So they believe. But they're not disciples. They're not following Jesus. They don't Jesus. They believe, but they don't trust him. And there's something they're really concerned about, and it's not Jesus. They're worried about the Pharisees kicking them out of synagogue. Because here's what they really love. They love the glory that other humans can give to them. They love what people around them are giving to them. They love the adulation. These people are among the rulers. They love their positions of authority and respect. They love being able to prance around and get the finest seats at every feast and for everybody to fawn over them. They love it, and they're not about to jeopardize that for Jesus. I don't care if it is true. They have a dead faith. Because what God is looking for is not just that we agree and say, oh yeah, that's right. What he's looking for is our hearts and our trust. He's looking for us to crave the glory that only he can give. To the point that we're unconcerned about any other kind of glory. Some Jews 
believed in Jesus. They knew he wasn't lying. But they didn't speak out. They didn't follow him as Savior and Lord. How is biblical faith in God different from a bare acceptance of the truth of a given fact about Jesus? I hope you know the difference. Let's keep reading verse 44. Now Jews, no, I'm sorry. Now Jesus cried out and said, <clears throat> "The one who believes in me is not believing in me, but in the one who sent me. And the one who sees me is seeing the one who sent me." I have come light into the cosmos so that everyone who believes in me might not abide in darkness. John has Jesus issue a final appeal before he closes this section of his gospel, a final call to the world. And he cries out. He shouts it out. If you're believing in me, you're not believing in some guy. I'm not just some guy. I have come from God the Father. Your faith in me is faith not in a human, not in a charismatic leader, not in a great teacher. Your faith is in the one who breathed life into you. When you look at me, when you set your eyes on me, when you fix your focus on me, you are not focusing on just some guy. You are focusing on God Almighty. He reminds them, I have come light into the cosmos so that everyone, anybody out there, who believes in me might not abide in darkness. We're going to be talking a lot about abiding in this year as we get into these chapters, starting with 13. Jesus is going to abide, uh, invite us to abide in him. I love that word. It's more than just remain. It could be translated remain. But it has the idea of taking up residence of living there, of making this your home address. And here's what Jesus is saying. I came so that you don't have to live. You don't have to abide. Your place of residence need not be darkness. I have come to give you the option of living in light instead. A new home address, a new place of residence. He came so we would not have to abide in darkness. How is life without Jesus abiding in darkness? Let's finish 47 through 50. And if anyone should hear my words and not keep them, I am not judging him. For I did not come to judge the cosmos, but to save the cosmos. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has one who is judging him. The word that I have spoken, it will judge him on the final day. For I have not spoken from myself, but the one who sent me, the Father himself, has given me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. 
And I have known that his commandment is eternal life. So this is what I speak. Just as the Father has spoken to me, so I speak. Some people are angry with Jesus. They say he's not fair. That he came here to issue an ultimatum to us. And he said, either believe in me or I'm going to send you to hell. And people resent Jesus for this. And they say, it's like you've got a gun to my head, Jesus. Believe in me or else. If you think that, you've misunderstood the situation. Jesus didn't have to put any gun anywhere. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He didn't come to say, you're going to hell. Guess what? We were already there. You know what our problem is? That sin has penetrated our hearts and severed us from our Creator, severed our connection to the one who breathed life into us, not only that, it has severed our connections to one another. It is so hard to have any meaningful relationships in this life that do not end up in wrecked, messed up relationships. We stumble from one to another because sin has severed us not only from God but from each other. And it has destroyed everything we were created to be. Jesus didn't come to send us to hell. We're already there. He came because we are in hell. He came because our hearts are so broken and messed up, we don't know what life looks like. And he came to offer to us life, light. He didn't come to judge the cosmos. We're already broken. Paul describes it this way. We, before we came to Christ, we were already dead in sins and trespasses. We were the walking dead when he showed up. He didn't come to kill anybody. He didn't come to end anything. We're already there. I didn't come to judge the cosmos. I came to save the cosmos. I came to rescue it. The only thing I came to offer you is a chance at life. You're in a hole. I came to throw a rope down. Now, you can take it or not. It's yours to take or not. But don't get angry with Jesus if you're pig-headed enough to say, I don't want it. Don't get upset with him that you choose darkness over light. There's nothing more he could have done for you. Nothing. He has done everything he could possibly do to make possible your rescue. So don't you wag your finger at him about it. You've got nobody to blame but yourself. I didn't come to judge. 
I came to save. So if you reject me, you don't want to receive my words? You have somebody already who's going to judge you. At that final day, that final reckoning when the dead are raised and we face final judgment before our Creator and give an account to our Creator of ourselves, you know what's going to make the difference? It's not going to be who's good and who's bad. We're all bad. There's not one good person among us. It's not how bad we are or how good we are comparatively. God isn't judging on a curve. We're already messed up. The only thing that's going to have any impact is what we've done with the offer Jesus placed before us. The word he spoke. The message became flesh. He came to say to us, I want you to live forever. I don't want you to dwell in darkness. I want you to be able to abide, take up residence in light. I am the light of the cosmos. Just come to me. Let me rescue you. On that final day, the thing that will make the difference is what we have done with the message he spoke to us. Did I receive it? Or did I say, thanks, but no thanks, Jesus? That's it. And he didn't come to judge us. That was already taken care of. He came to offer us the possibility of being saved. That's the only reason he came. He says, I'm not just whistling Dixie here. I'm not just making stuff up. I came here sent by the Father and He commanded me to speak the things I am saying. I'm not just making this up. I am communicating to you exactly the message the Father sent me to deliver. And I can tell you this about what He's commanded me to speak. It is eternal life. That's what I've come to, to speak. <clears throat> so that's all I'm going to say. What the Father gave me to speak, that I speak. Jesus didn't come to judge us. He didn't come to condemn us. We were already dead in our sins and trespasses. We were already living severed from God and from each other. He came only to offer us the chance at rescue. Why is genuine trust in Jesus that results in doing what he says the only way we can find rescue? Jesus didn't come down to earth because he was angry with us. He wasn't upset because we've made such a mess of everything. He's not the school principal of decades past, patrolling the halls with a paddle, looking for somebody to beat. That's not what he's up to. God the Father sent his one and only beloved son to die on a cross. All so that we could be freed from the power of sin. We already abide in darkness. It's all we know. We breathe it in every morning. 
Jesus came to offer an alternative. If we will trust in him, if we will take hold of his hand and allow him to, he will pull us to safety. We don't have to live in darkness. We don't have to live the way we were living. We can buy a house in a new neighborhood because of him. We can dwell in the light. We can have a completely different way of life, restored to God, beginning the process not only of restoring our relationship with our Creator, but He is empowering us to restore our relationships with each other as well. Restoring us to the human family. Sealed for life eternal. I guess... The only question that remains is, are you willing to fully entrust yourself to Jesus to leave behind your domicile in darkness and move into the neighborhood of light? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that when you see us in darkness, you're not repulsed. You're not just disappointed and upset but that you look on us with profound love, so extravagant that you were willing to empty yourself of glory, come to us and suffer the horrible, horrible cross to make possible our rescue. Thank you for loving us so. God, we pray that we're not the pig-headed, stubborn, people who know you're there, know what you're offering, and still say, I'm I'm too much in love with this other thing to have life eternal. I'm too much in love with the darkness to embrace the light. God, give us hearts to understand. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And help us to open ourselves up to you fully in faith. Rescue us, Jesus. And lead us out of darkness into your light eternal. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.